Lord, you are a good, kind God and gracious uh, just to sing of your love for us. Um, Lord, is amazing to think about that you would love us. We thank you for that, Lord. We thank you that you care for our needs. We thank you that you give us needs that we need cared for so that we would turn to you, depend on you and trust in you. Father, I do want to pray for the many in our body today who may just be struggling with a need or a trial or uh, something in their life, Lord, that is bringing discouragement or um, or just struggle. I pray, God, you would encourage them through your word this morning. Pray, Lord, for uh, the many students, uh, God, from our church that are in junior high and high school, elementary school, college, Lord, within uh, maybe public schools or Uh, Lord, even Christian schools, God, I pray that you would use them in these last few weeks before the school year ends to be salt and light. Lord, that you would uh, make an impact on our campuses and our community. Pray, Lord, for our time now that you would bless your word. Lord, that I would be clear and, and accurate. Lord, that you would speak. Lord, that your spirit would move in us to understand and, Lord, to carry out Apply what your word teaches. And we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, for uh, Jessica Buchanan, last October 25th appeared to be a routine day. Um, Jessica's a, an aid worker in the nation of Somalia, uh, doing aid work for a Danish relief organization. And October 25th seemed to be going as normal until things took a turn for the worse. And some Somali bandits yanked her and a colleague out of their car and took them, kid- and took them hostage, held them for ransom. Uh, Jessica, uh, there wasn't much publicity about her because the family did not want the media to get involved and kind of raise, uh, raise the ransom price as a result because if, if she was seen as more important, that might affect uh, the ransom that they wanted for her. And as the days turned into weeks and the weeks into months, her family became more concerned because not only were they concerned about what her captors might do, but she had developed a condition, uh, I think, in her kidneys that was, became life-threatening. She needed medical attention. Uh, just you know, think about if you were in that circumstance. Think about if that was you. Uh, you being taken to a remote location, held hostage by men who were heavily armed, not knowing what they're going to do to you, your, your health deteriorating, uh, you, you and just this other guy seem like, you know, no one's going to think about us or care for us. It's just two of us out here in the middle of the boonies. Imagine how you would feel. Well, 93 days into her captivity, uh, SEAL Team 6, are getting in the news a lot these days, uh, parachuted in near her location, hiked to where she was being held captive, engaged uh, about 20 gunmen there, took out half of them and rescued Jessica and her co-worker. Can you imagine how she must have felt? Not only to be free, but also the fact that she had the relief that I can get health aid for my health now, medication, and, and just the thrill of being able I can see my husband again. I can see my family. Imagine the joy that she must have felt. You know, we love those kinds of stories, don't we? Where someone's in a dire situation needing to be rescued. And the, the more dire or hopeless the situation, the, the greater the thrill when we see uh, rescuers coming to free that person. Well, here in Ephesians 2, 1 through 6 that we're going to be looking at this morning, it describes the greatest rescue operation ever carried out. That rescue operation came at great cost. And it involved a group of people in the most desperate situation that you can imagine. 
And the thing that I love about this rescue operation is the fact that we were the ones needing to be rescued. It was us in that dire situation. And while Jessica's situation was indeed desperate, ours was even more so. She was had under the threat of physical death. Ours was a threat of spiritual, eternal death. In Ephesians 2, 1 through 6, we're going to see God's amazing rescue of enslaved sinners who were doomed to hell. And in this, these verses that we look at together, there'll be three points I'm going to focus our attention on. One is the who God rescued in verses 1 to 3. Secondly, how he rescued in verses 5 and 6. And finally, why. Why he rescued in verse 4. But look at the text with me. We'll be in Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked. According to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You know, if you remember back to chapter one, verse 19, where Paul talked about the surpassingly great power that is in work within those who believe, those who are his children. And then Paul went in verses 20 to 23 to to illustrate or to show how that power was manifested in what God did in Christ by raising him from the dead, taking him to heaven and then seating him at his right hand. Well, Paul then moves from that in verses 20 to 23 and, and how God's power was at work in Christ to how God's power is at work and was work in work in us. Verses 1 to 6 are the description of God's power, that surpassingly great power that we've already experienced if we know Jesus. And that power not only uh, is taking place in the present, but took place in the past. And that illustration and that example is is meant to be an encouragement to us that that power will continue. And so as Paul moves from God's power working in Christ as an illustration of that power in us, he, he moves to the example that we can see in our own lives if we've placed our trust in the Lord Jesus We can see the connection between verses 20 to 23 and our our paragraph this morning in chapter 2 based on looking at verse 20 and comparing that to chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. We see similar kinds of phrases there that are mentioned, that God raised Jesus from the dead and raised him up into heaven and seated him at his right hand. In chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, he said, God raised, made us alive. God raised us up and God seated us in the heavens with Christ. Ephesians 2, 1 through 6 is showing us that we can be confident that God is working in us now because of the work that he has already done. Paul begins by describing the desperate state or situation of those in whom he worked. In verses 1 to 3, we're going to see who he rescued. Paul first begins with an assessment or an overall summary of who he rescued. But in the statement, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now, that phrase actually is written there as a complete sentence, but in the original, it is not. It's literally you being dead in your trespasses and sins. It's an orphaned phrase. It's waiting for a main action, which doesn't take place. We don't see it until verse 5. But for at the beginning, Paul leaves it dangling there. You being dead in trespasses and sins. And we know he's talking here about a, a spiritual death. 
Because for one, it's not physical, obviously, because he is writing, assuming someone's going to be reading this or hearing it, right? Secondly, we know that it's spiritual death he's talking about because he describes in verses 2 and 3 the people living life, the walking according to a certain way or living in the flesh. And Paul describes and begins, I think, with this statement, you being dead, because what he's saying is all of us, apart from Christ, are dead spiritually. We're in an ongoing condition of spiritual death. Jesus uh, mentioned this idea in Matthew eight twenty two. This idea of that our souls being spiritually dead when he talked about, if you remember the the man that said, Jesus, I'll follow you, but first I want to go home and bury my parents. Uh, They probably hadn't died yet. He could have been wanting their inheritance. We're not sure. But but Jesus said, well, let the dead bury their own dead. You come follow me. Or in the parable of the prodigal son, you remember the father, as he was explaining to uh, uh, his other older son, he said this, we had to celebrate and rejoice for this brothers of your, brother of yours was dead and has begun to live. Well, he wasn't physically dead, right? He'd been dead spiritually. But just what is spiritual death? What is that referring to? It's this idea of a, a separation or an alienation from God, not experiencing the fellowship or the relationship with God, having no ability to interact with the things of God, to truly understand and apply spiritual things. No capacity to do anything that would please God. That is what spiritual death is. Just a couple chapters later, Paul says in Ephesians 4.18 that uh, unbelievers are excluded from the life of God. I was trying to remember, you know, who the first dead person was that I, that I saw. I think it was my uncle um, when I was younger. He was in a coffin. And I remember that uh, mixed with the sadness, there was also a real curiosity you know, I, I realized that, you know, as I, I could have spoken to my uncle or could have yelled and screamed even, but there would have been no response, right? I could have put smelling salts under his nose, the strongest I could find. There would have been no reaction. I could have shaken him or tried to lift him up or stir him around to get him to move, but he would not have responded. I could have tried to pour something in his mouth, some water or something like that, to see if he would swallow it, but it would just have spilled all over his face, right? And why is that? Physically dead. No ability to interact with the surroundings around him. No ability to move or respond. He was incapable of it. It's kind of one of those, well, yeah, of course. But Paul's trying to get us to see the fact that before Christ, we're in the same condition spiritually. No ability to respond to spiritual things around us. 1 Corinthians 2.14, Paul says this, A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Paul's giving a description there. Without God's life in us, without His Spirit, we really can't understand and comprehend the things of God. Notice in verse 1, Paul says, you were dead in trespasses and sins. Trespasses and sins, there are simply two synonyms for rebellious acts against God, disobedience. Sins you may have heard as uh, described or interpreted as missing the mark. We have to add one word there, though, intentionally missing the mark. You know, it's one thing if, I, if I'm trying and I shoot at that exit sign and I, with all my might and accuracy, I'd still miss it. I'm not good at it. See, I'm not even doing it right. Um, I'd miss it. It's another thing if I go over here. That's what sin means in the Bible. I'm not even trying to hit the mark. 
or trespasses, the idea of stumbling or tripping up. But it's almost, it's looking at the rock and intentionally tripping over it. And Paul's saying that our condition, that spiritual death that we experience is in our trespasses and sins. That little word in there tells us this isn't a process, it's a state. And what I mean by that is a person doesn't become spiritually dead because he sins. No, a person is spiritually dead because by nature he's sinful. Right? David said, in sin, my mother conceived me, Psalm 51. Now, this this is a problem, right? Because not only can people who are physically dead not respond to physical surroundings around them, but they're not even able to give themselves life, right? I remember probably one of the saddest scenes that I've experienced. I was at, uh, my wife and I were up in Idaho visiting some friends on a we were in the living room, I think, or in the, at the front door, and a paramedic, an ambulance pulls up and they, across the street, and these paramedics rush out of the ambulance and into the house right across the street. And it wasn't long after that that, that uh, the first paramedic came rushing out, and he's holding a baby in his arms, its arm limp. And the second paramedic was with him doing CPR as they were rushing this little one into the truck. And the mother was following them. You can imagine a state of shock, disbelief. But you know, that baby was not going to bring itself back to life, was it? Those paramedics were there to do that. Only what was outside of that child could, could resuscitate it. Without Jesus, we're in the exact same condition spiritually. We have no ability to revive ourselves, no power to bring ourselves back to life. John Piper said this, The reason we need a Savior is not just that we are in the doghouse with God, and need to be forgiven for offending His glory, we need a Savior because we are in the morgue. In the doghouse, you might whimper. You might say you're sorry. You might make some good resolutions. You might decide to cast yourself on the mercy of God. But what can you do if you're in the morgue? You know, our situation without Christ is frightening because we can't raise ourselves. We need a paramedic. We need someone outside of us to do it. And in verses 2 and 3, Paul further substantiates our hopeless condition. Not only does he begin with you being dead in trespasses and sins, he then begins in verses 2 and 3 to describe what that is, what our condition is apart from Christ. And in verse 2, he focuses on the fact that we are governed externally by certain powers. And in verse 3, he focuses on the fact we are governed internally by our own flesh. Verse 2, he says, in which you formerly walked. That is the idea of how you conduct your life, how you live morally and ethically. And the walk here of the unbeliever is described how? According to what? In line with what? Controlled by what? The course of this world, right? Course there is the same word that Paul used earlier for ages. It's typically a reference to time. That's how it's used in the New Testament. And Paul always uses it that way. So what he's saying here is, uh, you walked according to or in line with this present age, this world system, how things are right now in this evil age, he talks about later. Paul is saying, when you were dead in sin, you followed the ways of the world. And this is not a commendable thing, right? The world is not the physical creation that he's talking about here. He's talking about the world system, right? In 1 John 2, 6, John described that system when he said, All that is in the world, the lust of the, finish it with me, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. 
That is not from the Father, but from the world. Or Jesus said in John 18, 36, My kingdom is not of this world. John 4, 4, or James 4, 4, excuse me, he said, Friendship with the world is hostility towards God. See, the world is opposed to God. Now, why is it opposed? Because of who rules it, right? 1 John 5, 19 talks about the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And that's where Paul takes the direction in the next phrase in chapter 2 of Ephesians, verse 2, where he says, we walked according not only to the course of this world, but also according to the prince of the power of the air. Well, who's that? It's Satan, the ruler, the, the prince of the power of the air. Simply he's talking about our realm, the realm in which we inhabit. Satan is the one who is ruler of that realm, John twelve thirty one tells us. And in fact, we did more than just follow his ways. It wasn't that he is the ruler and we followed him as a ruler. He also governed us more specifically and with more control. We see that in the next phrase where he says, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Spirit there he's talking about is the human spirit, our soul. Of the, the soul he is now working in us. Spirit here is that, that idea and the, the phrase here is parallel to the power realm of the air. Um, it's a little confusing, but let me just maybe give you a little bit clearer translation of what Paul's saying here. We walked according to the prince of the power of this realm, the prince of man's souls, who works in the sons of disobedience. You see, Paul is saying here that Satan was not only the ruler over this realm of the spiritually dead, but that he also was over the spiritually dead themselves. Matthew thirteen thirty eight. Jesus describes only two categories of people. He said, those who are the sons of the kingdom and those who are the sons of the evil one. First John 3, 8 said, the one who practices sin is of the devil. Second Corinthians 4, 4. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ. Think about that. That is a frightening condition, isn't it? That is a perilous situation to be under the influence, not only of this living in this world system, but to be under the control of the one who rules it. And Paul doesn't end it there. He he goes on to describe not only are the spiritually dead governed externally by this world system and by the prince of that system, but also internally by our own flesh. Look at verse three. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Now those first two words that Paul gives here among them actually are the the same two words that he uses to begin verse 2, which there are translated in which. I think here in verse 3 it should read the same way, in which. He's going back to not the sons of disobedience that were part of that group, though that, that was true. He's going back to that we're dead in trespasses and sins, in which... One, you formerly walked according to the course of this world, and also in which you also formerly lived. We also did according to the lust of the flesh. Verses 2 and 3 are parallel with one another. One's focusing on the external powers around us, the other on the internal power within us. We see that in these two phrases, in which you formerly walked, in verse 2 parallels, in which we also formerly lived, in verse 3. Walk and live, they're synonyms of the same thing in each verse. 
being dead in sin means not only were we ruled by Satan, but also by our own fleshly lusts. And lust there is a word that means uh, strong desire. It can mean good desires, but of the 38 times it's used in the New Testament, 35 of them are bad ones. So it's usually used in that way. Here in verse 3, those lusts find their source where? Where do those lusts come from? Outside of us? It says our own flesh, right? Flesh there is that our corrupted and our corruptible nature, that which is in opposition to God, as Paul talked about in Romans 8, 6, when he said, the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God. It isn't even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And the problem here is, not only do we have these desires of the flesh that Paul talks about, he goes on to say we indulge them. We do them, literally. We carry them out. It isn't just that, that we want to sin, it's that we actually commit the sin. And Galatians 5.19 gives a, a laundry list of the deeds of the flesh, of when one engages in indulging the desires of the flesh. Paul says there in Galatians 5.19, the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are, Immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not enter the kingdom of God. So the picture here, chapter 2, 1 through 3, Paul's painted a pretty bleak one. That apart from Christ, we were in a state of spiritual death. We were governed by this world. We were enslaved by Satan. We were uh, in bondage to our own nature, which was by nature at birth given to us, one that was in opposition to God. And notice that idea in verse 3, Paul says, we are by nature children of wrath. You know, I wasn't born good. You weren't either. We weren't even born morally neutral. It's not our environment. That makes us sin. It's not how we were raised. It may affect the kind of sin we do and how much we sin, but that desire was already there. My environment didn't make me a sinner. I are one by nature. So are you. We're born in sin. We are dead in sin. We are born with that inclination and drive to satisfy our fleshly desires. Any of you that have I had a baby and raised that child. Know exactly what I'm talking about here, right? They, they show it to us visibly from birth. These verses describe how desperate and dire a situation we were in without Christ. I, I was trying to think of what, what would be an illustration or an analogy of this to try to help us see just how desperate that situation is. And the best I could think of was, was kind of like a, we need to look at ourselves as we're, uh, we were... Uh, We're in this prison called the world. The warden is Satan himself, and the security guards are his minions, the demons. And within that prison, we are buried deep within it in this cell of our flesh. The problem is that cell has no door. Another problem is we're dead on the floor inside that cell. No chance, no hope ever, ever of escaping. We are stuck in there. No way out. It's completely hopeless. Paul's trying to get us to see emphatically that we had no possibility to bring ourselves back to life, to escape from that cell that we were in, to get out of that prison and out of the control of the one who has power in the air. 
we were in a more desperate state by far than Jessica was. And what makes matters even worse, Paul says the wrath of God hung over our heads. Verse 3 says, by nature we were children of wrath, even as the rest. Children of wrath there doesn't mean we were angry kids. He's talking about there in a weird sort of way. We had an intimate relationship with God, but that relationship was as such as that his wrath or anger abided on us apart from Jesus. You know, have you noticed that God's wrath seems to have been removed from the vocabulary of our culture? We don't hear that word very much anymore. We don't want to offend with it because wrath is kind of a mean and nasty word, isn't it? To talk about God being wrathful gives a picture of God as some crotchety old man or, or some raving lunatic who's out of control and violent, kind of like the garrison demoniac. Get close to him, you're going to get hurt. So instead we say things like, God's unhappy. He's, he's not pleased with, with sin. No, God is angry. Romans 1.18 says this, that the wrath of God, the fury, the anger of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Revelation 16 describes God's wrath being poured out on mankind at the end of history. And it even describes the seven plagues that he brings, the seven bowls of wrath. We even see in Revelation, Jesus described as he's carrying out judgment on the earth as the wrath of the Lamb. And people hear this and say, you have a mean God. No, he's not mean. He's angry with sin. And he should be angry because sin is bad. I don't have to describe what we've seen in humanity and what the human heart has been capable of and has committed. Every day people are molested or raped or abducted as slaves to carry out their immoral desires. I just read an article this morning of a poor girl that that happened to. Every day, people are kidnapped. Even people trying to do good like Jessica was. Right now, someone is plotting to commit murder somewhere. Or maybe even carrying it out. We've seen pictures of the death camps. We've seen the pictures or things of the Stalin's reign of terror. We've heard of the unspeakable acts of serial killers right here in Southern California. Dahmer, Ramirez, Manson. Horrific things. We've read of the horrific torture and suffering that humans have inflicted in one another all through history. A few years ago, I, I couldn't, you know, you'd think at some point nothing would shock you anymore. I read about a woman in Georgia who was so angry with her boyfriend that she took her baby and beat her boyfriend with her baby. Yeah, kind of makes you mad, doesn't it? That makes me angry. And if me, a sinner, gets angry at sin in the world, how much more so a holy and righteous and just God? He is angry at sin, and rightly so. Sin is evil. Sin is bad. Sin is wicked. Sin brings pain. It brings suffering. It destroys. It kills. Thank God that he's angry against sin. That is what is right. The wrath of God is not a bad thing. God is just and that is a good thing. All sin should be dealt with. And not just the most horrific ones. It includes our own. It's not just those who've committed these atrocious sins who fall under God's wrath. Paul says here in verse 3 that we are all sinners. He includes himself. 
the Apostle Paul and all the rest of us, we, are all, we were all too formerly sinners. We all too lived in the lust of our flesh. We all indulged our fleshly desires. We all were by nature children of wrath. Do you recognize that even if you never did any of those terrible sins that I just described a minute ago, that apart from Christ, you and I are so corrupt that we are capable of them? Now, maybe some of you just don't identify with that. There's no way ever I could do some of those things. Ever. Really? It's only the grace of God that has restrained any of us from becoming those that we can't believe do such things. Maybe some of you think, you know, I, I just, I'm not that bad. I've never killed anyone or tortured or done any of those things you talked about. In fact, I've had a pretty good moral upbringing. I've, my family was fairly moral. I, I you know, attended church. I, I, I know I've sinned, but I'm not that depraved. I could never do those terrible things. If that's what you think, you need to take a long, hard look at this passage. Because that's not where Paul went. That's not what the Holy Spirit inspired to be written here. We are all capable of committing the worst of atrocities. And until you see yourself this way, you will never exhibit true repentance. You will never really understand the love and grace and mercy of God. Because you'll have this idea that, you know what, I'm, I'm pretty bad, but you know, overall I'm almost there and I just need Jesus to give me a little nudge and then I'm in. You know, I think sometimes there's a struggle a little bit with this idea of election. Some of us, I think, have that struggle because we don't really see how wicked and evil and desperate and hopeless we were. You were locked dead in the prison cell with no way out. In trespasses and sins. Capable of committing the worst of sins. That is what Paul is trying to get us at here. And if that's repulsive to you, you think, oh, yeah, I don't want to listen to this guy anymore. Look, this is what the Holy Spirit is speaking through the Apostle Paul. We have to come to that place where we realized how desperate and lost we were. This isn't a passage meant to beat us up and hit us over the head and just make, oh, I'm such a worm. And, oh. No, it's say, wow, God, look what you did to me, a wretched sinner. I can't believe it. Yes, that is me. That was me. I could have done any of those things. I really could have. And I know I could have. I thought many of them. And by God's grace, he kept me from it. You know, take it from this wretched man telling you what another wretched man said. We're all wretched. And I can smile when I say that because of the next two words. But God... We have to pause there a minute and think about that. That they're even there should blow us away. You know, if Paul had stopped at the end of verse 3, what a miserable life, huh? <laughs> to tell us about all the, where we were at. And then he says, theos, but God. But God. Martin Lloyd-Jones saw the message of the whole Bible contained in those two words knowing our human condition knowing where we were at and for god for there to be a but god blows the mind once we were dead in sin the theos but god made us alive once we were in bondage to the world 
the theos, but God broke those chains. Once we were held captive by Satan, but God delivered us. Once we were children of wrath, but God made us children of his love, adopted us. Once we were without hope, lost and dead, but God rescued us. You know, we were so lost, we didn't know we were lost. A dead person doesn't know that it's dead. Then came the rescuer, but God. You know, and those, those two words really take us from the focus of how bad we are and what we deserve to how good God is and what he deserves. And that's what Paul is doing here, focusing our attention on him. Well, let's see how our rescuer rescued us in the remaining verses in our paragraph here. Verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Well, here in verses 5 and 6, Paul finally gets to the main sentence of his paragraph, that God made us alive, that God raised us, and that God seated us with Christ in the heavenlies. And notice here in verse 5, before he gets to that main, uh, main sentence here in the text, he again one more time throws in, even when we were dead in our transgressions. That uh, phrase there is actually almost exactly the same as verse 1. He says, and we being dead in transgressions. Like one more time, Paul, Paul can't believe what God has done. He said, even, even, even when I was still shaking my fist at God, he made me alive. You know, Revelation 16, when God was pouring his wrath out on creation, the sin of of mankind, twice there, it describes people shaking their fist at God and saying, basically, I hate you. Even knowing God has existed, still in a state of hatred. It's almost like Paul is saying, I can't believe it. I was the guy there shaking my fist too. Even in, I was in sin. God made me alive. We being dead with no hope, no ability to change ourselves. We being dead, God made us alive. And saving us, he gave us spiritual life. Jesus described it as being born again. A new you. Romans 6, 4 says that we now walk in newness of life. Now we can respond to spiritual things. Everything is different now. Before, when you were dead, the Bible seemed impossible to understand. Confusing, ridiculous, maybe. But now that you're alive, it's beginning to make sense. When you were dead, church was boring or maybe just a social network for you. But but now you want to be here. Now you want to serve. Now you want to help others grow in Christ. I loved a couple of prayer requests in the prayer sheet this week, which you are picking up now, right? Um. In the prayer sheet, a couple of people said, Lord, just help me know how to better serve you and serve in your church. I love that. That's a living person there. Wanting to serve the Lord. By the way, we did pray for that. Before sermons were long and dull. Now they're still dull. <laughs> well, I hope not. But hopefully that when the Bible's being explained, you want to listen. You want to hear now. Before, prayer was a chore or non-existent. But now you want to talk to God. 
Sometimes it may be hard because of sin, but, but we can confess that and, and have a desire to, to, to spend time with our Father. Before, singing was lifeless, but now you desire to give praise to God. Before, obeying was a burden, but now you strive to obey out of gratitude and love. Yes, we still stumble, but there's the effort and the desire. Before, sin didn't seem to be an enemy, but now you battle and fight sin. Before, your heart was not stirred at Christ's sacrifice, but now you're moved in your soul when you think about Christ's death for you and what He did. Before, heaven seemed appealing because hell didn't seem that fun. It was a bad thing. But now, heaven is a place that you want to be because of God being there and having perfect fellowship with Him. Before, there was no real affection for God. Now, there is passion. Now, you're alive. Everything's changed. You can see now. You can hear now. You can feel now. The things of God make sense to you. And more importantly, they matter to you. Jesus is everything to you. You're alive. Or are you? Have you seen a shift in your own life from death to life? Do you identify more with the before on that list I just gave or the after? Do the things of God truly excite you? Do you have a deep affection for Him? And You know, I know you know the answer to these questions. Only you can answer them. Only you know in your heart of hearts if you are alive or not. If you aren't, Christ can change all that. Confess your sin. Beg Him to give you life. Beg Him to help you see. Beg Him to grant you forgiveness. And God stands ready to rescue you. Jesus is sitting in the paramedic truck right now. And He's the fastest paramedic in the universe. He will be right there. If you say, God, rescue me. And He will. Many of us can share testimony that he has. Amen? His truck showed up fast for me. I tell you that. But do it now. Do it now. Because if you're not rescued, you're under God's wrath. But he doesn't desire for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. The engine's ready. The ambulance has started. Make the call. And notice in verse 6 that when we do repent, not only does God make us spiritually alive, but it says there He also raises us up with Him, seats us with Him in the heavenly places. And there, if you'll notice in those two verses, that word with is repeated quite often. The reason for that is the fact that, that Paul uh, does what he likes to do a lot with Greek uh, grammar. He, he takes words and mushes them together to make a point. And what he did here with these three verbs, uh, to make alive, to raise up, and to seat, he added a preposition, soon, which means with. And he's stuck it on to those verbs. So that if you were reading this in the original, you would see this emphasis on with. He's made us alive with Christ. He's raised us up with Christ. He's seated us with him in the heavenlies. Paul's trying to, again, emphasize, as he often does in many of his letters, that we're interconnected to Jesus. What God did in Jesus, he did in his children. When God raised Jesus physically from the dead, he raised us spiritually, made us alive. When God took Christ out of the tomb and raised him up into heaven, he did that with us spiritually. When God seated the Son at the right hand of the Father, he seated us with him spiritually. Being raised means 
here that you have a new home now, a new citizenship. You're no longer a citizen of this world. Ephesians 2.19, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, and you're of God's household. Philippians 3.20, For our citizenship is where? In heaven. Is. Is in heaven. From which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're no longer citizens of Satan's realm. We got yanked out of that old shack. We're not part of that anymore. God's given us a new home and a beautiful home. Our home's in heaven. Our family's in heaven. Our place of rest is in heaven. Do you think this way? Do you think about heaven? Not just someday I'm going to be there, but I want to be there now. You know, I, when I uh, worked in uh, the job that I was in before in the electronics industry, I did a lot of traveling, particularly in the Far East. And, you know, I don't know how many times i was in a hotel room going i i hate it here i want to be home or those particularly rough days where you think i I, rather than me in this situation i want to be with my family that's the idea here don't you want to be home don't you want to be with your family without sinning against your family don't you want to be where your father is Colossians 3 1 talks about that idea. Since you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. You have a new home. You have a new relationship. You have a new family. You have a new life. You have a new citizenship. You have a new king. And verse 6 tells us that. We're sitting next to that king. That he raised us up with him and seated us with Christ in the heavenlies. But what does Paul mean by that? Because as I look out among us now, you all are sitting in a pew here in church. So obviously we're not physically there. Is this something that's going to happen in the future? Paul talks about here the tents given for raised, made alive, which happened in the past, right? Raised up and seated. The tense there means it's already happened. In a very real sense, you are seated with Christ now, spiritually. Someday it'll be fully realized. And it's the idea here of, you know, if you think about if you have a seat on a board or a committee or a club, even if you're not physically sitting in that chair, you have all the rights and privileges that belong to that membership, right? That's kind of the idea here. And where is it that Jesus is sitting? At the right hand of the Father. Good, you were listening last week. At the right hand of the Father, right? So if he's sitting there at the right hand, we're not at the Father's right hand, by the way. Only one sits there. But we are sitting with the one sitting at the right hand of the Father. And you remember what that meant, that he was at the right hand of the Father? What did the right hand represent? Power, authority, rule. So we're sitting next to the one who is ruling over all creation, especially over the bad guys. Satan and his demons, Christ has full authority over. I think what what Paul is trying to help us understand here is that at salvation, we were made alive, we were raised up and seated with Christ so that now Satan no longer has authority or dominion over us. We used to answer to the prince of this realm, but not anymore. 
Apostle John said in 1 John 2, 13, I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. A couple chapters later, John said, Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. That overcoming is not a work that I did, but it's a work that God did for me when he raised me up and seated me with Christ. Now, some people take this passage to mean that uh, we have authority over demons now and that we should go about casting them out and rebuking them and things like that. We're never commanded to do that. It is true that we battle not against flesh and blood, right? But against the spiritual realms. But we're commanded to put on the armor. We'll talk more about that when we get to chapter 6. But I bring the point up to say that being seated with Christ doesn't mean that, you know, I'm bad now. I can pick a fight with anybody I want. Satan can't do nothing to me. You know, Michael, the archangel, was careful when he was around Satan battling him. We should be too. Yes, we have overcome the evil one and the world. I don't have to give in to his temptations. He's no longer the authority or power over me. I'm sitting next to Jesus who has authority over him. Satan can't mess with you without Christ's permission. And that, brothers and sisters, is a great comfort. Verses 5 and 6 show us here then that God has rescued us from more than just perishing in hell. That God has given us so much more. He's completely reversed our condition in sin. We were dead. God gave us life. We were part of this world system. God's given us a new home. We were enslaved to Satan and God gave us freedom. God has rescued us from the deepest chasm imaginable and taken us to the greatest, most unfathomable heights of glory. And that's what Paul is trying to show us in this text, that, that, that God has done all that already in you, and that power continues. It won't stop. It's not like once God did that, that he's you know, washed his hands and said, okay, I'm glad that's done. He continues to work in us, as chapter 1, verse 19 says. He's not stopped working in you, but continues to exert that same surpassingly great power that he exerted in you when he saved you. But why would God do that? That's an important question. Why in the world would he walk by us who really are decaying corpses and not plug his nose and walk away? Some of you may have heard of a man named Thomas Sullivan who died earlier this week in his home from a fire. He woke up in the middle of the night, got his son out of the house, and then just as it burst into complete flames, he rushed back in to get his wife and his two daughters out of there. Why did Thomas do that? Why did he risk his life to rescue his wife and his daughters? He loved them. He loved them. Listen to what Paul says in verse 4. But God, being rich, and mercy because of the great love with which he loved us made us alive. Brothers and sisters, God ran back into the blazing furnace of hell for you. Jesus suffered hell for you because he loved you. Because he still loves you. God is rich in mercy. He's abundant in kindness and pity toward those who are in a terrible situation, who are suffering, who are in need. 
Think of all the times. Remember when Jesus was on this earth and how many times. Look them up in the Gospels where people cried out, have mercy on me, have mercy. Did Jesus ever keep going? Did he ever stop? I don't have time. Peter, go take care of that. Yehu. I got to get something done over here. Did Jesus ever respond that way? As God walked the earth, he always stopped to help one in need. Often it talked about his compassion, his mercy. We in our pitiful state, God being rich in mercy. And I like the contrast that, that Paul gives here. He says, you being dead. And then in verse 5, you being de- we being dead. And then, then he says, but God being rich in mercy. Our nature, our condition was one of spiritual death. God's nature and characteristic is one of mercy. Exactly what we need. God did more than just withhold punishment when he saved you. He's not there gritting his teeth, counting to ten, trying to restrain his anger against you. I made a deal. I got to stick with it. No, in his very being, in his very nature, he is one who shows pity, one who has compassion. Paul adds in verse 4 that God exercises that mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. And Paul goes overboard here in emphasizing God's love in two ways. One, calling it a great love that's abundant, without measure, beyond measure. And then he repeats the word love in a verb and a noun form. He says, he loved us with his great love. We all want to be loved, don't we? Love is the idea of an unconditional action for the benefit of another. That's what God did and continues to do. Act on our benefit because He cares. We all want to be loved, don't we? You're lying if you say no. We do. We want someone to care for us. We want someone to to show affection towards us. We want someone to act on our behalf and for our benefit. God loves you. In God you have found that love. And I think at times we, we struggle with understanding this because we compare God's love to human love, to our own love, which is inadequate or insufficient, isn't it? Love that, or things that people have done who say they love us, or things that we have done to others who we say we love, and we kind of put God in that category, and we're just waiting for the other shoe to drop, that God's love is temporary. God's love isn't with affection. God's only doing these things because He's supposed to. We can think that way sometimes, but don't think that way. That's how we act. That's not how God is. And praise God, he's transforming us to be loving more as we should. You know, the book of Hosea is is just one of those that blows me away. God, God tells his prophet to marry a prostitute because he wants to illustrate the pain that he feels by being betrayed by his people Israel. You realize God feels that way with sin, betrayed, as if a spouse would feel that had been cheated on. But listen to what God says in Hosea 11.8, in the midst of that pain as a spouse who'd been repeatedly sinned against. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I surrender you, O Israel? My heart is turned over within me. My compassions are kindled. God rescued you because he has a loyal, affectionate, unchanging, and unconditional love. And he loved you with a great love, an overwhelming love. Brothers and sisters, please realize God just doesn't tolerate you. 
He has a genuine affection for you. I think we really just don't get that at times because we, we don't really know what it looks like. We don't know what that really is because all we go by is what we've seen and experienced here. God's love is not like human love. And here we get a glimpse of it, what that love is. God rescued you knowing how dead you were, knowing how lost you were, knowing even in the midst of that rescue that you were sinning against him. And he did it anyway. And he made you alive. He raised you up and gave you a new home. And he has seated you with his son at his right hand for eternity. And as if God's rich mercy, as if his great love weren't encouraging enough, Paul gives one more reason that God has rescued us. And let me tell you, that reason is worth the price of admission. I am so excited to look at this because if we really understand that third reason, it will transform your Christian life. If you really have a grasp and understanding of that third reason why God rescued you, it will change how you think and how you live. But you'll have to come back next week to find out. But you can cheat and read ahead if you want. Ask God's Spirit to give you insight. Let's pray. Lord, uh, knock my head against the wall at times. Just wonder, why would you bother with me? Lord, I, I know what I've thought and what I've done against you. And, and you chose to rescue me. Thank you for that, Lord. I thank you for my brothers and sisters who you have also rescued Lord, I pray that as we ponder and think about what we were and what you have done in us, that we would be encouraged to press on with zeal, Lord, out of love and gratitude towards you, to praise you, to honor you, to live for you. We used to live for ourselves. Let us not do that anymore, Lord, but to live for you, to long for heaven and to proclaim to those who are drowning and have drowned it that you are the great rescuer. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.